0: Well, what are you looking forward to about heaven other than it being warm? C.S. Lewis says, has this world been so kind to you that you should leave with regret? There are better things ahead than any we leave behind. Well, today we come after uh, five weeks in Revelation. We come on the sixth week to the very final two chapters where we talk about heaven. C.S. Lewis called heaven the secret signature of each soul and the incommunicable and unappeasable want. Let's jump in. Revelation 21.1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And then it says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among people and he will dwell with them. They will be with his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. Or mourning, or pain, crying—the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, "I am making everything new." Now, when God created the world of Genesis, He created it for the first time, and then soon after that, He grew, he, he regretted making human beings and destroyed the world. That was with Noah. And then the recreation through Jesus is happening. And at the end, he ends it totally and creates a new world order. He said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this. And I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, idolaters, all liars will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Now, you will be very, very happy to learn that we were able to find a whiteboard, not this board. uh, So the next time I use it, it won't look like I... Has this cheap little whiteboard, but I want to make sure everybody is very clear on this picture because everyone today is making a choice about where they want to go. The Bible tells us in the book of Revelation that there are two kinds of people, right? There are disciples. and non-believers. Two very, very different fates. And this is important because you have to choose what fate you want. For disciples, when they die, this is the first death. They go to, and a lot of people have wondered what happens for the people who are already dead they go to paradise. And paradise is incomplete. And the reason it's incomplete is because we're not there yet. People who are non-believers when they die go to Hades, which is an incomplete version of hell. The reason it's incomplete is because Satan and the demons, as well as other non-believers that are here, aren't there yet. So these are two very, very different paths. When Jesus returns, as the second coming, people who are alive, who are Christians, will experience the second death. They will die instantaneously and take over new bodies. For people who are alive who are non-believers, they will die instantly and be consigned to hell. What John wants us to understand is that the disciples are victorious and the non-believers are cowardly. That's what he calls them. Why is this the case? Why are the disciples of Jesus called victorious, and the people who are non-believers called cowardly? Because the people that he's referring to that are non-believers, some of them used to be disciples of Jesus. They have succumbed to, as we've talked about, the beasts. They have succumbed to culture. They have succumbed to non, or they have succumbed to false prophets. And so Jesus talked about these people. These are the wolves that come in sheep's clothing. These are the people that you need to be clear that you're looking at their lifestyle and their behavior because by your fruit, you'll know them. This is the small, tiny path. This is the large path. And so when the book of Revelation comes to the end, The assumption is, of course, non-believers are going to go to hell, but that's not what John is saying. The decision that has to be made today is for those of us who could call ourselves disciples of Jesus, are we truly victorious? Are we truly willing to punch um, the beasts of our culture in the throat? Are we willing to truly be victorious and die for Jesus or are we going to be like the cowardly non-believers who attend church who have some moral veneer to them they know enough of the Christian vernacular just to pass by it's really hard to tell sheep from a goat at a distance the question is which is you which one's you Jesus told parable after parable after parable after parable. If you remember, the book of Revelation doesn't teach us anything that isn't taught in the other parts of the New Testament. Jesus said, the end of time, the king is going to gather all of the people who call themselves disciples of Jesus. Non-believers are already in hell. He calls all of them, and he says, some of you, I need to be honest with you. You've called yourself my follower, but you're not. Some of you are, some of you aren't. That is what's being described to us today. So the question I have for you is which one are you? One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And then he describes in detail what heaven is. I don't know how many of you have always wanted to know what heaven is going to be like. Here is John's description of what heaven is going to be like. He carried me away to the, in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down of heaven from God. It shone, it shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates, and on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were tw- three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them was the name of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it is wide. He measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia, or roughly 1,500 miles, in length, and as wide and as high as it is long and the angel measured the wall using human measurement it was 144 cubits or about 200 feet thick and the wall was made of jasper and the city of pure of gold as pure as glass now that's a lot do you want to know what it actually looks like what it's being described as this that's the new city that's the new heaven it's a cube As wide as it is tall. That's heaven. And you're like, really? That's it? Yeah. That's it. Sort of. A big asterisk right beside it. Sort of. Cube, 20 feet thick, 200 feet thick walls, 1,500 miles in every direction. And at this point, we have to ask, is this actually what heaven is going to look like? And the answer is, of course not, right? Hopefully, you know enough from the book of Revelation now to know that essentially the big ideas are the same as the rest of the New Testament, and it's all told in non-literal images. What is John trying to do? What's John saying with the book of Revelation? Maybe this will help. Maybe this map, if you look at this map, this is, I couldn't figure out on Google Maps how to actually do a cube. So this is a circle, but maybe that will help. What is John trying to do? If the center of this is in Jerusalem, what's John trying to do? Maybe, maybe if I come a little closer, this will help you. What is John trying to say? Look at 10 o'clock. What city is at 10 o'clock? Rome. This next photo is a picture at the height of the Roman Empire at 117 AD. So it was smaller at John's time. And so what John is trying to say, and if you haven't understood it yet from the book of Revelation, this is the big exclamation point at the end. The book of Revelation is a huge throat punch to the Roman Empire. This is what it is. The Roman Empire, starting with Nero and then all the way through Domitian, killing disciples of Jesus who are victorious to the end, forcing people to make a decision. Are you going to throw incense into the bowl and say, Caesar is Lord, or are you going to say Jesus is Lord? And so what John was doing is that John isn't comparing the New Jerusalem, the city, to the city of Rome. The glory of Rome is unmatched in its beauty. What John is saying is that when you think of Rome and you think of all of its splendor and all of its glory, the most powerful city in the entire world It is a mud pit compared to what the new city is going to be. The new Jerusalem, John says, the foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper. The second, sapphire, agate, emerald, onyx, ruby, chrysolite, beryl, topaz, turquoise, jacinth, and amethyst. In other words... Your house where you live, or your apartment where you live, or your condo where you live, you know the foundation that is covered up by the dirt on the outside and grass that you don't see? What John is saying is that even the part that you don't see is made out of the most precious um, commodities in the world. That's how amazing and better this city is than Rome. Rome. We usually spend money on the parts of our homes that people can see. The inside, the floor, the front, the gathering areas, and bathrooms. But John is saying that even the foundations of this new Jerusalem are priceless. The twelve gates were twelve pearls each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold and pure purest transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine it for the glory of God gives it light and the lamp is its light and the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor to it and on no day will its gates be shut for there will be no night there and the glory of the nations will be brought into it and nothing impure will enter. Shameful, deceitful will enter this city. I want to pause here and say we are at a distinct disadvantage when we're listening to John's description because I'm pretty sure except for a handful of people in this room nobody in this room is a farmer nobody in the room goes to bed at night setting up a perimeter around their house with a defensive posture thinking at some point at night there are going to be people who are going to invade my house and I'm going to have to protect my family and possibly die We just don't live in that culture where we're providing our food. So when it says next, the angel showed me the river of life as clear as a crystal flowing from the throne of God and the lamb down the middle of the great city, each side of its city stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing. We read that and we're like, honestly, heaven sucks so bad. Like I'm giving up my whole life for this. What it's trying to convey is if you lived in the ancient Near East in the first century, you were constantly under threat. And so you would constantly build walls. And what John is saying is at this place, you don't have to build walls and man the, the, the walls and the gates. The angels are going to do it. You don't have to go and chop firewood. We are so used to Pico providing our electricity that if we had to go one week to provide warmth and light for ourselves, we wouldn't know what to do with ourselves. But the light's going to be provided. If we had to provide our own food, if we had to grow it, and if we had to kill it, how many people would actually last five months? And what heaven is saying is that that's going to be provided. Trees, Water. How would, you, how would you filter your water? For someone in the ancient Near East, this sounded like heaven. For those of us, however, that live in the 21st century in the nicest place on the planet, we look at this passage and we're like, eh, that's a letdown. But is it? What's being described is there is a place, imagine your relationships that are unmarred, by shame, unmarred by sin, unmarred by a lack of self-worth, unmarred by lust, unmarred by abuse, unmarred by disparities of power, unmarred in relationships based on socioeconomic status, ethnicity, whether you're black or white or Asian, Imagine living in a place where none of that came into play, where all of the things that we are wrestling with right now, all of our addictions, all of our um, inabilities to live life the way we want it to, all of our mental illnesses, all of our physical ailments, all of that is gone, no longer Verse 3 it says, Will there be any curse? The throne of the God the throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more light. Verse 5. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign. And look at what John says then. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true the Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angels to show his servants the things that must take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in the scroll. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I When I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. Don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your fellow prophets. And all who keep the words of this this scroll worship God. And then he said, do not seal up the words of this prophecy of the scroll because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to be right. And let the holy person continue to be holy. You know what's been fun about this series? All the questions that it's generated. All of the controversy that it's generated. Is my mic going out? Oh my God. Um, at the beginning of the series, I, um, I talked about how this is a book about empire or Jesus or and disciples who are engaging in sexual immorality. I wanted to wait until the last week to point out that I did talk about homosexuality. I did talk about the challenges of this culture. But in the New Testament, the clearest and the most rampant form of sexual immorality is divorce. Jesus said that if a, a disciple of his is married and gets divorced, they're not allowed to remarry unless their partner committed sexual immorality, which essentially allowed them an out. So we live in a culture where Christians basically want to find homosexuals and say, you are the sexually immoral ones. But in the New Testament, according to Jesus, the most rampant form of sexual immorality is divorcing someone without just cause and then getting remarried because you're forcing that person to commit sexual immorality with you. How's that for heaviness? How's that for hearing Jesus' words fresh? How's that for understanding people who are victorious and people who are cowardly. Fact of the matter is, Christians are very, very quick to judge people who don't fit in their categories. Very quick to judge people who need to go to hell. Very quick to judge our enemies. But the reality is that in this one example is that we have just as many disciples of Jesus getting divorced as in the culture And so I bring this up, not to shame anyone, but just to be honest. If we're going to be disciples of Jesus, we don't commit sexual immorality by leaving a spouse unless there was some kind of abuse or sexual immorality that the spouse was committing. We don't don't leave that spouse because of convenience. And we, we know that. And so I don't bring this up because I want you to relive all of the difficulty of that relationship. I bring this up to say we are all fundamentally broken. We're not picking on the gays with the book of Revelation. And we're not picking on the 50% of the people in this church that have been divorced. What we're picking on, what we're going after, are the beasts. The systems, the people, the systems, the laws, the regulations, and the repudiation that take people who are in difficult situations and beat them down, destroy them, take away their soul. And so when Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have life abundantly, What he's saying is I'm trying to recreate now the new creation. And so John's book is a statement against Rome. It's not a um, picture of what heaven is going to be like. I'm sorry to get to the end of the book of Revelation and have it be a letdown. But this is a statement that we live in a culture as disciples of Jesus where we have a choice to make. Either we're going to allow the dominant culture to shape us into its image, or we are going to be victorious, and we are going to say, even though we've made mistakes, even though we've gotten divorced, even though we have committed all kinds of sins, Jesus comes and he makes me new. And then together, what we're going to do is we're going to join this new community, and we're going to push back the walls of darkness. This whole series has been leading up uh, to this day, for this moment, so that, like I said at the beginning of my talk, we have a decision to make. To become a disciple of Jesus, the Bible tells us we're to do three things. Number one, we're to believe. We're to believe that this is the case. We're to believe that Jesus is real. We're to believe that this is what's going to happen. Number two, we're to repent. There are lots of people who call themselves Christians. Who have never repented of their sin. Who have never gone head first on the floor. Telling Jesus, I am utterly remorseful for what I have done. And following my own path. And then the Bible says that we're to be baptized. Baptized baptism in the new testament is not sprinkling as a baby it is not sprinkling as a child in fact in the new testament there's a little bit of violence in this that you're leaving the arena of the beasts you're leaving the arena of darkness and you're being plunged into the light and then being brought back out into the light where you have an opportunity then um To become a follower of Jesus. Light in the darkness. In but not of the world. And so what we're going to do right now. Is we're going to have a baptism service. For those of you who are ready. What we're going to do. Is we're going to meet over in this corner right here. Um, We are. uh, If you brought t-shirts and shorts. That's great. We have changing areas. If you didn't. And you want to get baptized. And you're ready to do this right now. You're ready to say I'm in. I don't know for sure. Whether or not if I was to die right now. I would go to heaven. This is your opportunity to seal that in your mind. For those of you who are ready, what we're going to do is we're going to walk over. Um, We're going to get changed and we're going to participate in the uh, um, ceremony of baptism. Frank's going to be to the back. Frank, go ahead and wave there. Frank's going to do it. We're going to wave. And I want to say for those of you who are watching us online... If you have not been immersed yet, if you have not been baptized, we would love to help make that happen wherever you are in the world. We have mission partners all throughout the country and all throughout the world. And wherever you are, you reach out to to us and uh, we'll we'll make it happen. So for those of us who are ready, we're going to walk over and we're going to do the baptisms right now. Thanks for listening to Brian Jones Sermons. For more information and to find similar articles on this topic and more, please go to Brian's website at brianjones.com.